Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods, Principal Analyst of Early Adopter Research here on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast. I'm very happy today to have Stephen Owens, the CTO of ThoughtWire, with us. Stephen, would you please say hello? Good afternoon, Dan. Pleasure to be here. This is an exciting conversation for me because it's bringing together two interesting directions that I've covered in recent work that we've done. The reason that I ran across Stephen is that I wrote an article about semantic technology. It was about, are semantics the undead of enterprise tech? And in that article, I asked, why is it that semantics keep coming back over and over again? Uh, I got uh, a note from Sandy Mangat, who works at ThoughtWire, and she said, you know what, we're doing a lot with semantics, and we would love to talk to you about this article. Uh, I had some preliminary discussions with Sandy and Steven, and it turns out that they have a platform called the Ambient Platform that is built to actually apply semantics by creating a digital twin uh, that models a certain area of activity based usually on sensor data. That digital twin then is used to power automation and and analysis for various uh, different domains. They've started out by creating applications for commercial real estate and healthcare. But today's conversation is going to be about the original ideas I had about semantic technology and then about how those ideas are actually applied and put to work inside the ambient platform that ThoughtWire creates. So, Stephen, are you ready for a fun conversation? Definitely looking forward to it. So, the reason we're talking is that I wrote an article about our semantics, the undead of enterprise tech. And what I meant by that article was ever since the, the World Wide Web was created, the, the, the next thing that Tim Berners-Lee did was start working on semantics. And people had done a variety of applications and then they decided to create a bunch of standards. And this was shortly after the web was created. And th- those standards were RDF, OWL, and they, they were intended to allow you to create mappings of information and make information more useful and be able to do reasoning on information. And what happened is that those standards have come and gone and come and gone in terms of levers of excitement, levels of excitement about uh, how they were actually going to, uh, you know, change uh, enterprise applications and how they were going to make the web more powerful. And it, it seems that they would come and then they would fade away and then they would come back. And so, as far as I can tell, we're now at, at, at a stage where the actual semantic standards have been around a while, but we now have the mature graph technology. We now have a lot of mature ETL technology. We also understand how to do modeling and also have the you know, graph analytics, the algorithms, all of that stuff is mature now. So we can make more sense of all the semantics. And I think that we're entering an age in which you know, semantics is finally going to actually come into its own. Now, you are obviously a a close observer of this because your digital twins are essentially semantic models. Um, How do you see uh, where we're at in terms of the state of semantic technology and whether it's ready for prime time in the enterprise? Yeah, great question. I think that uh, I love the article, first of all. I think that it hit on a lot of points that um, I also feel very strongly about in terms of the role of semantics in the enterprise and its uh, sort of on-again, off-again nature. I guess I might define it more as a a gawky adolescent than an undead zombie rising from the grave. Um, I think that 
as with many technologies, we've gone through periods where the semantic graph just looked unwieldy. Uh, there weren't tools, there weren't standards, and there wasn't uh, good knowledge in the industry, good experience in how to use it. And I think that we're seeing more people who understand the tech now, and it's being applied in a range of industries. We're actually hiring people out of you know, bioinformatics and out of uh, building code and finance. So a lot of industries are starting to take advantage of it, and I think that uh, it's one of those maybe slow burn technologies that really is coming into its own as the scale of our problems grow and uh, people just realize the need. Well, I think that another way of, of thinking about it is that the, the, the semantic standards were created and there was some set of tooling around them, you know, from the very beginning. But RDF didn't find a lot of, you know, applications that we find in, you know, broad use, except for perhaps the, uh, the, 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 the RSS feeds, you know, which I think are based on our RDF technology. But the rise of graph databases when combined with semantics and when combined with an understanding that you needed really legitimate domain knowledge to come to this to complete the picture i think has been really proven especially in the digital twin area of manufacturing you know uh, a couple of years ago we worked with ge digital to write a book called the industrial internet of things for developers and we had a long chapter on digital twins because that level of modeling was how a lot of predictive systems for maintenance and, and, and other type of operational optimization actually came together. Um, and so I think that those things explain, you know, why right now we're actually ready for prime time. But also, you know, if you look at, you know, the rising number of graph databases, you know, the, 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 the semantic technology usually defines a set of relationships, but then it comes to life in a graph. And that's using that graph and having the operational maturity of the graph databases, I think actually is, has really made a big difference in, in bringing this to life. I'm assuming that that's sort of the way it works in your ambient platform. Yeah, it is. That's right. And I think the, uh, you know, one, so certainly the existence of capable graph databases and suitably performant graph databases is making a big difference. And I think so is the existence of problems like you described in the industrial internet, where uh, we're no longer dealing with kind of silos of data, where a fixed schema model of relatively, uh, you know, simple table structure is sufficient to describe the richness of the information that we're receiving. I think both of those two things are really driving a lot of interest and just a lot of need. There aren't other tools that solve that same problem. Uh, as well. So now let's get to the ThoughtWire uh, ambient platform. Uh, the way I'd like to start here, and I'd always like to bring this back as we talked when we were preparing for this call, to you know how what you've learned and what you're doing shows the power of semantic technology. So first of all, let's start out with the origin story of ThoughtWire. Um, you know, the way we like to describe uh, a product, as I explained in our preparatory call, is that we believe that most products have what we call product dogmas, which are the basic assumptions that define the point of view about the problem in the marketplace and the ways that you can solve that problem and then the ways that you can implement that solution. And, and those product dogmas really are, are what you use to define who you are as a company. Now, 
Then when you implement the solution, you, you create points of what I call technology leverage. You create a product architecture, and then that gives you leverage in, so that people can do things simply that are very complex and very powerful. And so, you know, what I'd like to do today is talk about your origin story and then go into your product dogmas and then some of the points of technology leverage. And then we'll end up by talking about the use cases that you have chosen to go after. And, and perhaps one interesting discussion could be why you've chosen to go to market as a use case based uh, uh, company rather than as a platform company. So let's start out back with the origin story. You know, what was the, uh, the moment that the team came together and thought, we have to start ThoughtWire. Yeah, it started with our CEO, Mike Monteith. He was actually working as a um, architect and technology lead for the province of Ontario, um, working in healthcare. And the problem that he was faced with is, how do we bring together all of the uh, clinical systems that inform patient care in the same way that the banking industry brought together, um, you know, the debit card network. And looking at the technology vendors roadmaps over the next N years, uh, you know, looking at things like um, SOA technology and data duplication and ETL tech, he didn't see a solution that would uh, solve the problem that he saw in healthcare. And primarily that problem um, that he came up against was all of the information that is needed to deliver really great care is present in a huge range of systems. The providers, so an emergency nurse in, a, in an emergency room or a uh, surgeon preparing for an operation, don't have access in the moment conveniently to the information they need. So he actually defined quite a different problem definition than uh, most of the vendor landscape was looking at, which is how do we bring together a useful set of information, a very um, confidential, privacy-intensive information at the time it's necessary to provide a sort of just-in-time solution to an outcome that people need. And one important thing to point out here is that a lot of the advances, especially in the U.S., about, you know, electronic medical records have really been focused on billing and not on patient care. So it's really a, a, a different emphasis to be and a different problem that hasn't been solved by standards to focus on patient care. I couldn't agree more. I think that so much of uh, clinical technology is driven by transactional requirements. It's driven by um, insurance and billing and other things. And it's very true in Canada, too. We have a single payer, but the problem remains the same. And one fascinating stat that uh, Mike likes to quote is that at the time we started the company, technology adoption in uh, healthcare had been going up by large multiples every year for the past uh, two decades. Meanwhile, nursing um, productivity had gone down by 30% because we turned them into data entry operators. And it's kind of a crime to take these people who want to be providing patient care and uh, making them interact with computers all day. So now, how did this problem area lead itself into the, the basic, uh, you know, kind of product dogmas that you have? Because the way I see it is, you know, one of your product dogmas is that there's a, 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 an urgent need for information integration in the use case areas that you're addressing, both in commercial real estate and 
uh, in healthcare. But the, the second dogma would be that using a digital twin is the right way to perform that, that, that uh, information integration. And, then I, and I suppose a third dogma would be that you know, using semantic technology to build that digital twin is the right way to do that. Yeah, so um, the, I, I love the framework of dogmas to think about this, first of all, because I think it provides a really interesting framing. And when I was sort of reanalyzing uh, what we've done with the platform and how we got from our origin where we are now, that lens of, uh, of the dogmas that we chose is actually really productive. So I think there's several things. One, um, we believe that people matter. So we're trying to bring people into the system, not disintermediate them. And that's driven a lot of platform decisions. Um, two, what, we so think, what, what would you explain? How would you explain the difference between bringing people into the system and not bringing them into the system? Yeah, so a lot of the work that's um, preceded what we were doing, work that we were reacting to, if we think about you know, service-oriented architecture or system-to-system -system integration, was all about taking information from one system and making it accessible to another system. And that leaves a big last mile problem, which is, okay, but who actually gets the outcome? Who derives value from that integration? And so many of the things that we were looking at were multi-year integration and coordination problems between systems to deliver tenuous value to an unknown set of stakeholders. We turned that around and said, hey, let's start with the stakeholders. Let's start with the outcomes that are meaningful to them. And then figure out an architecture that makes it possible to attack those problems without the five-year plan to produce the Uber system that has all the information in it, which, by the way, is also a privacy disaster and a, um, a scaling problem and a security problem and all kinds of other um, issues that come up with it. So how did that lead you to the doorstep of semantic technology, digital twins, uh, and that approach? So we had, first of all, the idea that we wanted to solve for an outcome. And an outcome implies a set of constraints that aren't often true in system-to-system -system integration. So for example, in healthcare, um, the big clinical systems that we were dealing with had sometimes thousands or even tens of thousands of individual tables of information in them. And so when you think about an integration project of that scale, just identifying the data dictionary around that is a multi-year effort. So we turned it around and we said, okay, we want to constrain this to a much smaller problem domain. It's not about all the information that's in there. It's about the information that, let's say, an admissions nurse needs to check a patient in or a clinician needs before doing surgery to do a patient overview. When we put that constraint around it, we immediately came to the idea that, first of all, we've got a much smaller set of uh, meaningful information. But we also don't know in advance what the um, structure of that information is going to be, and we need it to be very flexible. And my background coming into the company was in um, semantic markup. I started uh, back in the uh, SGML days, worked through XML, um, had patents in other companies to do with information structure, and in particular with imposing structure externally on information that didn't already have structure. And so the 
application of true semantic markup, um, had been very interested in uh, in RDF and in uh, Tim Berners-Lee vision for the semantic web for quite a while. The application of that to solve this problem of a constrained but extremely flexible set of um, of data, it just seemed kind of obvious. And going along with that, one of the challenges that I think semantics has had, formal semantics has had, is that the problems they've aimed at have been very, very big. It's a corpus of knowledge on the internet or all the information in a particular subject domain. It's a very hard modeling problem. Because we constrain our, our um, digital twins to particular outcomes, the modeling problem's smaller and it allows us to uh, better apply that tech. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because first of all, it come, brings to mind a couple of, 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 of analogies I'd like to make. The, first of all, the way I like to think of ETL and gathering data in the semantic world is that instead of ETLing into tables, you're ETLing into labels. And so in this case, what's happening is that you have a, a wealth of information and the job that you need to do is to find the actual subsets, the, the rows, the columns, the subsets of those vast 10,000 tables that are actually relevant to the problem at hand and then you just suck those things out into your digital twin and use them. And the analogy that, that, uh, to, to that that reminds me is uh, Edward Tufte, the, the, the graphics uh, and, and data visualization pioneer, in his lectures, he recounts how as a grad student, he started looking at the corpus of knowledge related to his PhD thesis. And he realized that 95% of it was junk. But he thought, oh my God, my job is not to pay attention to the 95% of it. My job is to find the 5% of it that's actually relevant to the problem I'm at. And it seems like you guys have taken the same assumption uh, you know, to the problems you're addressing. Your job is to find the 5% or, or smaller of, of information in this vast ocean of information that is actually relevant to the problem and the outcome you're trying to create. Yeah, exactly right. That's a great analogy. And uh, you know, anytime that we can um, be in alignment with anything that uh, tough thought, then I think we're, <laughs> we're, we're moving down a pretty good path. Now, once you have the, um, uh, uh, the, the sort of core uh, uh, dogmas of finding that information, bringing it into a, in, into a digital twin, what are the dogmas or the principles you have where you go, where you taking that information from that model to actually, you know, presenting it to, the people using the data, using the system, so that they can get a better outcome. What are what are the principles in, a, in play for you know the analytics and the actual user interface? Right. So um, there's one more input dogma that I'll add just before I go into that, and that's that um, we have believed from the beginning that the scale of the inputs that people are dealing with, the set of systems that they are interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis, has been increasing geometrically and is starting to go up exponentially. So it used to be that an individual, let's say a nurse or an operations manager in a, in a commercial building, had kind of one system that they had to deal with. And over the past you know, 20 years, that's gone from one to a small, small number of tens. And as the internet becomes the system that everybody's dealing with, it goes from tens to hundreds and thousands. And so this means that the functionality and 
the information acquisition problem that individuals have to deal with is scaling beyond the individual's ability to deal with it. And that helps inform our um, user interaction model as well. Got it. So the idea is that you're sort of, uh, there's, a, there's another book by uh, the guy who founded TED, uh, I think Richard Saul Lerman, called Information Anxiety. And it was written in, in, in the early days of the internet where people were realizing that there was more information that was relevant to them than they would ever be able to consume. And that information anxiety, you know, uh, uh, led to uh, people, you know, constantly being in a state of worry. It sounds like what you're saying is we accept the principle of information anxiety and we're going to actually calm everybody down by, by, by taking responsibility for that and then delivering what's relevant for a specific user. Yes, and, uh, and I think the information anxiety is heightened in, I'll call it a functional anxiety, frequently people fulfilling a, a job, you know, being a nurse, being an operations manager, they often don't believe that they even know which systems or capabilities are available to solve the problems that they have. They're not comfortable that they know enough about the environment around them to do a good job at the things they're being asked to do. And that's a horrible position to be in um, as someone with responsibility for, you know, life safety in the case of healthcare or um, the operation of a major commercial building. Got it. So now let's move to the trip from loading up that digital twin to using that digital twin to, to gain an outcome. Right. So we started again in a, in a very user centric um, position. So coming from our view that people matter and we don't want to disintermediate them, we want to empower them. We started in all of our early engagements with the, the end users, the stakeholders that really cared about that. So for example, we would go into a hospital and we'd talk directly to nurses or porters or physicians and find out what part of their job has been made difficult by the inability to access or record the information they need. Then we would discover where the systems were that had the available capability, the functionality or the information, and to figure out how to bring it into a digital twin and what the twin would look like that could encode that information. I'll give you a concrete example. So one of the very early things we did was um, give onward nurses an enriched view of the patients they were interacting with. So we talked earlier about how transactional uh, medicine, medical systems are and clinical systems are. They tend to be good at ordering a new test or putting in a requisition for um, medication, but not so good at getting a holistic picture of what's happening to a patient on the ward on a given day. So when we talk to a nurse and they say, okay, what I really need to know is how long has this person been on the ward? Have they exceeded their length of stay? Um, are they going to be checked out back to their own home? Are they going to long-term care? Are they scheduled for procedure soon? That's the sort of type of shape of information they want. So we start to build a model, a digital twin, that encodes the relationship between that provider that nurse and their patient and all the information around it and make it all uh, accessible to them. So in this particular case, that was a matter of 
driving all the way out to a user interface that describes the patient, their stay, put indicators up so that it would notify if um, you know they had been in the bed too long or if uh, they had a new physician appointment coming up the next day. That was sort of the start of the drive to surface information to the individual instead of making them go to it. So really closing that last mile right to the end user by driving from their point of view into the systems. So um, then how did you go from the kind of information integration challenge and, and, and presenting that information in a holistic way that was tuned to the user to adding analytics and, and advanced uh, capabilities for finding you know, insights that would be useful to the person using the system? Yeah, so that's a, it's a fairly natural um, outcome of the semantic models that we chose. Uh, because we enrich the information on the way into the digital twin with uh, a very deep layer of, of meaning, the relationships between the information sort of automatically surface new insights that the individual is unaware of. And this became starkly apparent to us in a digital hospital we were working in, where the input signal was a binary signal from a fridge. The fridge would say, I'm too warm or I'm too cold. And in the pre-digital twin world, that signal would go to a maintenance worker whose job it is to come fix the fridge. And that's kind of all we knew. In the digital twin world, we enriched that information so we knew what the role of that fridge was. Is that holding ice cream in the cafeteria or is it holding blood plasma or is it holding chemotherapy materials? So that when that signal comes in, we combine and enrich that information to say, okay, we know that the signal's bad, fridge is too warm. We also know this is a pretty high priority fridge. We also know who's on staff in that ward at this given time because we've combined it with the RTLS system to tell us which people are actually present. And we know the role of those people. We know whether they're a pharmacist or they're working blood services or whatever. So we can tell the right person who's near it that a really high priority event, possibly involving tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medication or other products, needs their attention. And they can just move those products into another fridge. So that's the way the, the richness of that digital twin creates an outcome that isn't possible with any simple integration or non-meaningful um, collection of data that diverse. Nobody's thought about operational data like that being combined with the business data all the way down to the employee schedules and roles in real time before. And then it sounds like that then you can create a variety of uh, event recognizing systems. And that's where later on we're going to talk about one of your key capabilities is complex event processing. So it sounds like that this, what you're saying is that you can have hundreds or thousands of these event recognizers that uh, are running at the same time and looking for all of the precursor events so that they can you know, signal and trigger the actions or a chain of actions that, 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 that help them. Um, so, and then have you been able to use any, um, graph algorithms, any advanced, uh, you know, graphic or analytics that help you uh, identify uh, uh, opportunities for optimization or, you know, or danger? 
Um, yeah, so we have um, in one of our uh, clinical applications, we spot uh, um, early warning for patient deterioration in uh, code blue situations. So we actually partnered with a research organization with Hamilton Health Sciences, and they had done all this really interesting research on what are the key indicators from a patient point of view that predict a patient decline heading towards a code blue or a, you know, a heart stopped kind of scenario. And some of the indicators are really interesting. They're very subtle. They're things like uh, mental acuity, their pain tolerance and sensitivity, their blood pressure, respiration rate, a whole bunch of things. Some of them are collected by sensors. So you can do a good job with um, telemetry from medical devices. And some of them are individuals. You have to have people who are noticing them and, uh, and recording them. One of the really unique things about the digital twin, we bring the people level information together with the machine telemetry and then we run the advanced analytics on it based on this research about how these factors should be graded rated and um, and applied and then surface the resulting event to be actioned so that people know at that moment sort of as soon as the nurse puts the information in someone knows hey this is a problem the right team is immediately alerted and brought together to help um, resolve that patient. Got it. And so uh, you can have arbitrarily complex or, ar or very simple things depending upon what the need is to, to recognize the event. Okay, so now let's move on to the points of technology leverage. Um, the idea of technology leverage is that you're able to do something relatively simply that, you know, in the past might have been very complex and, 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 and taken a lot of time. And so uh, the product architecture that you have is essentially you have a, a bunch of connectors that can bring in data from lots of different sources. You have a digital twin that can allow you to you know, make sense of that data. You have then applications that, that, that use the digital twin and those deliver a user experience that then uh, brings everything to life. And you also have a user experience for the people who are actually maintaining the system not just uh, the, the people who are using the applications. Um, what can we, what, what, what have you learned about this product architecture that, that helps you create leverage? So I think um, several things. So one is that uh, we live in a very um, dynamic technology landscape. So adding and removing new services from deployed applications is relatively common, um, as is having heterogeneous data sources. So, you know, even in the same commercial building, we'll have multiple different HVAC systems, we'll have multiple different lighting systems. And so the ability to define the interaction between the digital twin and its, the built environment around it has to be really dynamic. It can't be, you know, a set of pre-compiled binaries that have to be deployed to an environment and restarted to talk to a new thing. So one of the architectural things that we did is we built a very um, soft, late binding approach to all of our connectivity so that this ability to convert between the outside world, which is relatively semantics free and our rich internal semantic digital twin can be applied um, almost on the fly just by deploying some new uh, configuration artifacts to the platform. And that allows us to be pretty agnostic about which particular thing we're talking to, as long as we can 
you know, upconvert it into the same rich semantics. So whether one HVAC system is describing the, you know, backnet endpoint that has a temperature on it in one way and a different system is maybe, you know, a telnet access to get the temperature, it's irrelevant to us. We're doing the conversion in a way that allows us to, you know, deploy light config, reach out and get the same information and drive the same outcome off of it. That's one area where I think we provide a lot of leverage is in reusing. So it seems like that a core part of the intellectual property that you're creating are these normalized domain models that inside the digital twin so that you can understand not just what a specific HVAC system is, but what, you know, the, the general characteristics of an HVAC system are so that you can map any of the hundreds of HVAC systems to that standardized domain model. And then above that, you know, deal with applications. Yes, that's right. And uh, we work both with industry standards um, for those domain models. Uh, so in healthcare, that's HL7. And for, um, for smart buildings, there's a range of them, but brick is certainly uh, an important one. And then we also enhance them and combine them. So there's many different domain models that we're bringing together into, as you say, that sort of rich IP that we're creating, which is how you take advantage of all that capability to bring it to bear on a particular problem set. So now, um, the key capabilities that we talked about, you know, in the stack uh, uh, that we just mentioned are, you know, integration of data, complex event processing, security, reasoning engines, process orchestration, alerts and notifications, analytics and reporting, data privacy, mobile enablement, and then, you know, self-tuning and optimization. Now, we don't have time to go through a deep dive in every one of these, but what I would love if you could do is give me a few examples of like the magic tricks that you can perform, you know, maybe a couple from healthcare, a couple from uh, uh, the commercial real estate application uh, that, you know, show how, you know, an individual is really helped and can do many powerful things based on the automation and analytics provided by the ambient platform. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I think one of the, um, amazing core capabilities that the digital twin itself is the ability to react at whatever time scale the events occur in. So we operate across everything from very low level device time scales where it's, you know, millisecond kind of um, event frequency for RTLS systems, all the way up to human time scales where sometimes they don't notice for a couple of minutes. And so that allows us to have a very unique asynchronous processing model that both keeps enough context to be uh, to provide the right meaningful answer in the moment, as well as respond whenever an event occurs. And so in uh, CRE, for example, we use that to do things like alert the um, building operation staff about near real-time changes in their building. Take an example. Let's say they've got their building in lockdown. So, you know, it's the end of the day. They've put the security system in lock mode. All the outside doors are locked, right? So now they're walking around the building. As soon as one of those doors open, that building is no longer in secure state. But finding that out has been surprisingly difficult, right? The security system, as far as it's concerned, it's, it's in a locked state. You... Um, you know, if you pass a uh, security card through the reader, that's fine. You're not really breaching the lock state. And yet the state of the building has changed. 
So this is something where, um, you know, we're listening to elevator events, we're listening to lighting events, occupancy sensors in the lighting system, in the HVAC system, CO2 sensors. So by bringing all that together, using this um, asynchronous processing model, we can keep people informed and allow them to take action when things are happening. So one really interesting use case is um, uh, security, sort of personal security. We were talking to uh, a really interesting group of users who were thinking through how IoT sensors in their building could change their experience of interacting with that building. And one great use case came up, which is, you know, person working um, later at night and they're working with their team. And then at a certain time, most of their team is sort of drifting away. And there's only two or three people left on the floor. And then suddenly there's only one person left on the floor. And that one person who's left on the floor, they'd actually rather not be the only person on the floor. And they would have liked to have been told that they're now the only person working late at night on that floor. Or maybe they're one of only two. Maybe that makes them uncomfortable. So how do we leverage all of the different information that we have in real time to make that experience possible? Another one that came up was actually a really interesting cleaning use case, um, office cleaning. Never, never fails to amaze me just how sophisticated humans can make the simplest of uh, interactions. So there was a very security conscious client we were talking to where the cleaners may not clean an office unless the occupant is in that office because they have to be eyes on at all times if someone else is in their office. So these poor cleaners are literally running around the floor trying to find somebody in each office we can change that experience so that they're just alerted. As soon as the person walks into their office, they know it's available for cleaning, they get a green check mark on it, and they can go clean it. Well, what's, what's really interesting about your platform is that the same way that in, in the cloud right now, we have a separation of data storage and compute engines. So that you know, in Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud Platform or Azure, there's always an object storage platform. And increasingly, the compute engines, whether it's Redshift or, or BigQuery or whichever database or whether it's other analytical systems, are using that object storage as the raw materials. And num numerous compute engines can be you know, going after the same object storage or, or creating new object storage at the same time. And so it seems like to me that what, what you guys are really doing is you're, you're putting the digital twin in sort of that, the, the role of that kind of data platform and then you're able to provide as many different kind of commute, compute engines, whether it's complex event processing or a reasoning engine or process orchestration or various forms of you know, alert definition and notification or analytics and reporting. You can put all of those on top of that sort of digital twin layer to do whatever you need. And when a new one comes along, maybe it's AI and ML or maybe it's graph analytics, you can just add it as well and then you know, incorporate it in the applications. I assume that was something that you did on purpose. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and this follows on from, uh, you know, a bunch of AI and other research from the sort of symbolic um, stream of AI. You know, you think about the AI and ML has moved towards statistical uh, learning because of the prevalence of big data in that field. But before statistical learning, there was all this big movement toward uh, symbolic AI and symbolic processing. And so a lot of the work we did comes more from that uh, tradition. And so this ability to apply 
arbitrary rules and compute to known collections of facts, statements of facts, not just raw data, but assertions of truth. That's, um, that was, it's very intentional and, uh, and has ended up as a very interesting and scalable platform for solving these problems. Right. And because the rules oriented approach, the, the doesn't need to have the incredible volumes of data you need for some of the, the neural networks and AI That's and right. ML approach. Yes. Got it. Okay. And so now let's, uh, let's move to the, one of the major decisions you made as a company. Um, if you look at the landscape of the world of systems that are trying to take advantage of industrial, you know, uh, the internet of things and industrial applications, uh, you can, you can see a variety of them that are going to market as platforms like C3 IOT, or I guess it's now C3, um, and a variety of other, uh, uh of these, these, uh, systems are really all about creating a platform on, and they hand that platform to the user and, you know, maybe with a partner or maybe on their own, they build an application for their own use. You guys said, decided, you know, we're going to build a platform, but that's not the right way to go to market. We want to build applications and go to market with applications. Why is it that you chose that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we were looking at the problem, I, and I think this really comes right from the origin, from the belief that uh, user interaction and putting the user's problems first is crucial to um, providing leverage for the organizations that we're dealing with. So when we did that analysis, the gap between the traditional IT providers, the people who would have adopted our platform as a solution platform to try to bring it into these organizations and the stakeholders in the organization that could benefit from what we built, we felt was um, problematic. They weren't, they were continuing to deliver technology that was of benefit to the organizational stakeholders. So we'll talk about the administration or the ownership or the payers as opposed to the operational stakeholders. And, you know, we felt that if we want to directly benefit the operational stakeholders, the building management, the building operators, the employees of those, uh, of those organizations, the nurses, the doctors, that we had to be willing to take on that last mile role of showing how the platform can apply directly to their problems instead of just to kind of ETL kind of problems that IT or the CIO or the exec suite perceives. And um, it's been a really interesting journey. I think we've uh, learned a tremendous amount by interacting directly with those individuals. And, um, you know, it is challenging to find the right leverage points for any technology. Um, a technology that has so much generality in the way that, you know, a semantic model-based digital twin does is even more challenging. And we wanted to be able to um, help guide 
intended and valuable outcomes. And then through that, hopefully demonstrate to other partners and, uh, you know, eventually other, uh, other contributors that that approach um, has value. Well, uh, what was it about commercial real estate, CRE and healthcare that made you choose them as your focus? So healthcare was a pretty natural uh, outcome of our um, sort of origin and uh, and mission orientation as well to help um, you know to help people to help uh, help clinical staff and patients. And as we um, moved through the clinical applications and started getting into the building systems in hospitals. So, you know, we were interacting with everything from pneumatic tubes to elevators to HVAC systems in hospitals. Um, we were seeing that a lot of the same problems that we saw in healthcare of people being disconnected from the value of the information and devices that were around them was also very true in commercial real estate. And one of the just really eye-opening discussions that I had a couple of years ago with a, um, an architecture firm, a leading architecture and development firm, was that in um, large commercial buildings, it was a relatively recent phenomenon for them to consider the occupants of that building as key stakeholders in their design decisions. That many buildings before that had been built largely as um, primary stakeholder being the developer or the owner of the building. And so they're kind of vanity projects to a certain extent. And this idea that it wouldn't be the primary users of the building who were the beneficiaries, the intended beneficiaries that design work was kind of startling to me. And I see the same thing in, um, in systems design. And so it informed our desire to want to apply the same end user um, focus, obsession that we have in clinical into, uh, into CRE applications and try to make the experience of people who are working in buildings, which are, you know, where people spend, I think it's 87% of their time is spent in, in some built environment. Um, they're major greenhouse gas emitters. They're uh, places where you can have a major impact on people's quality of life, their experience of their environment and of their job. So now that we've gone through this explanation of ThoughtWire, we've gone through the way that you use digital twins and the way your product architecture works, it seems like you've got a very powerful platform here and you're putting it to use in, using, in, in areas that are really complicated and providing high value applications. Yet, my, the, the point about my, that I made in my article still holds. Why do you think that the use of semantics is perhaps more narrow than, than you would think given its power? I think that Semantics is hard. I still remember uh, the first time I dealt with uh, an SGML file. And I'm sure you know the expression, it's turtles all the way down. Um, so when I dealt with SGML for the first time, the idea that there wasn't a defined meaning for a tag, 
that it was a consensual illusion what that thing meant. There was nowhere I could go look it up was um, kind of meaningless to me. It's like I, I, I didn't get it. And so I think there's a level of abstraction and abstract thinking required to appreciate the, um, the power of the schemaless RDF kind of graph approach to modeling data. And modeling is not a particularly um, universal skill in any event. A lot of programmers get by much of their career without um, deep exposure to sort of formal data modeling or data modeling techniques. And I think that it's taking the concrete use cases and demonstrations that companies like ours are producing now to make it more self-evident what the value is. And as companies like ours and others are showing this value and it's happening, you know, it's happening in financial services, it's happening in insurance and um, in bioinformatics and a range of fields. I think those demonstrations will start to change the, uh, the leverage, but it takes time. Got it. Well, Stephen, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we've really covered a lot of ground and, 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 and explored some points that I think help explain both what ThoughtWire does, but also how semantics can come uh, to uh, maturity and actually make a difference in enterprise applications. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, Dan. It's a great conversation. Thanks a lot.